Last week, we looked at the nature of the Son's work. Tonight, we look at the Son's finished work. This comes in four sections with four headings. One is, He emptied Himself. Number two is, He lived a perfect life. Three, He offered Himself freely. And number four, He rose from the dead. As we look at these, we have to remember that, uh, I suppose, as we go into this, it's getting more and more critical. These things... We talk about the work of Christ, the nature of Christ. Uh, these are non-negotiables. Right. You may never, ever vary these things. We can't give and say, well, I don't know, God, Jesus has done this and for a certain reason. We have to stick to Scripture. We have to stick closely to Scripture. Uh, this workbook, you've heard lots. You have heard me talk about it. How uh, I think it's great and it helps me. And I think it's helped our church. I offered it to uh, another pastor. How it how it helps. Uh, but scripture is absolutely king. So remember that, young people. I'm I'm thinking especially of young people because uh, as we especially as we look at this first one, uh, and it talks about. Jesus uh, humbling himself. Different translations of scripture use different words. What we see here tonight says he emptied himself. <clears throat> Young people, there, you might meet a person sometime that will say, well, Jesus was just a man. And you got to tell them, no, 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 no. They missed it by one word, just. Jesus was not just a man. He is the God-man. Complete God, complete man. Don't ever give in to that. Don't ever let anybody say, Jesus was just a man. Okay, having said that, turn to Philippians chapter 2. This is a, the workbook says, and that it's a very accurate, very complete Way it says it calls it a powerful description of the incarnation. This is the first category. He emptied himself. As we look at this, <clears throat> I'm just going to go ahead and read verses six through eight, and uh, then we'll go with the questions and talk about the particular subjects in there. Talking about Jesus himself says, Who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Uh, this shows us, points out, that Christ's saving mission in order for the gospel to be complete, in order for it to be carried out, it required him to be human in an act of holy volition. Jesus did not do this under compulsion or force. He'd done it willingly. He deliberately, it was not an accident, or something that befell him. He deliberately, willingly, and for the sake of lost souls, took on human flesh. Yeah. God. This is, I don't know, a, a more mysterious thing in, in the universe, in Scripture. God in human flesh. They're opposites. They're worse than oil and water. They, they cannot mix Yet he did. Well, without mixing, actually. Uh, two, two natures in one person. He took on human flesh. 
one scripture that you can look at. Let's just turn there. Hebrews 10. Look at verse 20. This is referred to again later, but it's worth hammering. In the ESV, I'm going to start at verse 19 and read through 21. Hebrews 10, focusing on verse 20. Therefore, brothers, since we have confidence to enter the holy places by the blood of Jesus, by the new and living way that he opened for us through the curtain, that is, through his flesh. This is way it was translated in the the King James translates veil as flesh. So we see here that Jesus' flesh, when you looked at Jesus in this time, we know from the scriptures that people did not say, oh, there's God. We can see from the scriptures very many times when an angel would appear and they would say, oh, there's God. And the angel would say, no, don't worship me. These people looked at Jesus, who is God, and nobody ever said that. There was nothing about Jesus to say, there's God. His God, his deity, was veiled. It was it kept people from, from noticing his flesh, actually. And that's what this scripture here is pointing out. It says further on that he emptied himself. I want to read from this uh, book by Thomas Watson. It says, I have here, Christ as God humbled himself. Remember I said it was an act of holy volition. He done it himself. Jesus took flesh. The Bible does not say it clearer or better except to say that Jesus in his humility, he was humbled by taking on flesh. Uh, we've talked about in the men's meeting before on Saturday morning how what a great, horrible shock or change it must have been for God who had never experienced anything bad or anything sinful, uh, who existed in heaven for all of eternity, wham, thrown down into a nasty, dirty God-cursing, God-hating humanity. But that's what happened. He took on flesh. So the very taking on flesh is how he humbled himself. In this A Body of Divinity by Thomas Watson in the chapter on Christ's humiliation states Christ's humiliation in his incarnation, his taking flesh, no, Christ's humiliation consisted in his incarnation, his taking flesh, and being born. It's that, that short, that simple. It's dangerous to add more to it. It was real flesh that Christ took. Not the image of a body as a manichees erroneously held, but a true body. Therefore, he is said to be made of a woman, like we see in Galatians 4.4. 4. As bread is made of wheat and wine is made of grape, so Christ is made of a woman. His body was part of the flesh and substance of the virgin. This is a glorious mystery. God manifest in the flesh. In the creation, man was made in God's image. In the incarnation, God was made in man's image. I cannot explain it more clearly. I can't go into more detail. Uh, the fact that God himself took on a body, flesh, is humbling. It is lowering. It is humiliating. And Christ done it for the sake of the gospel and for the sake of lost souls. It's... If you, the more you think about it, the more fascinated you'll, you'll become. Yeah. The next phrase says, by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men. 
And my comment is, in his humanity, he had no status. Just like I mentioned a minute ago. You look at Jesus in the flesh, he wouldn't say, there's God. He had no status. He was a commoner. His family was devout, but they were poor. His physical appearance was ordinary. He was born in the likeness of men. The next comment at the bottom of page 255, this is an excellent summary. Turn to 2 Corinthians 8 and 9. There's very many places that that state things about Christ's humanity. The fact that he, he was God, yet he was man. 2 Corinthians chapter 8. Let's see what I want to read here if I want to skip ahead to verse 9 or not. This states what I just said. For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ. The grace, not of compulsion, not because it would benefit him, but because it benefits lost humanity. The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor, so that you, by his poverty, might become rich. He humbled himself. He, he had nothing to gain. He, he used his deity to benefit other people, not himself. This was and is a work of grace. Like I said, this, this is not something we earn. It's not something that Jesus gains by. Jesus is not obligated to help or save people. He willingly, out of love and compassion, to please the Father, humbled himself took on flesh. This is a very, very accurate, very, for our purposes here tonight, very descriptive scripture. The next heading talks about, on page 256, the son lived a perfect life. Again, kids, young Christians, this is absolutely non-negotiable. We cannot, cannot go to the left or the right on this. He would not have been a perfect sacrifice had he not been sinless. The first scripture that it points out is 2 Corinthians chapter 5. It said, what it describes in this book says, here we find an undeniable declaration of the sinless life of Jesus. Let's look at that. Should be just a couple pages back. Verse 21. Yes. For our sake, he made him to be sin, who knew no sin, that in him we might become the righteousness of God. Here we see the key words that I pointed out are be, or accounted, or as entirely, uh, he was. He made him to be sin. Jesus did not sin. But when God looked at Jesus because of us, he saw sin. The next word is new. First word is be. Second word is new. Now Jesus was not acquainted with sin experientially like we are. We know what it is to sin, don't we? I know I do. It's very... Ugly, very, just just bad in every way. Jesus did not know it that way. He could look at sin. He could look at a person and say, I see sin. He could walk by that person and know that that's sin. But he never sinned himself. He knew sin, but he didn't know it experientially. He was not acquainted with it. And the next word is become. This is in God's reckoning. He made Jesus... He reckoned Jesus as sin 
someone that did not know sin so that we could be reckoned as righteous in Jesus. Just like Jesus. This, this, is, this is another miracle to me. The fact that we spend most of our thoughts and most of our time selfishly or thinking about what I want or corrupted by the world. There's, there's nothing good in us. But because of Christ, this imputation, God sees us as believers as as good as Jesus. Perfectly. Holy, sinless. That that blows my mind. The next verse that we're led to is Hebrews chapter 4. Let's just turn there. chapter 4 verse 15 says for we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are yet without sin in his flesh as a human he was tempted he he was he knew what it was to to be tempted with sin. To see the draw of sin. But he never gave in to it. Even the slightest. Not even in thought. He, the Corinthians text that we just went to. Knew. The word knew. He was among sinners. He knew what sin was. But like I said. Not experientially. He was tempted. But never actually sin. Don't you wish you could say that? Do you ever? I know I have. Sin. No, I've done something wrong. I look back and say, I know that was wrong. I shouldn't have said that. I I shouldn't have done that. Why did I do that? I mean, it's so convicting. And you wonder, why did I do that? How could I not avoid that? Would I not? That was dumb. Jesus never had that regret. He never knew what Temptation with the fulfillment of that temptation was no abasement at all in Jesus' life. This next scripture referring to Jesus' perfect life is 1 Peter 1.19. You have to remember many of these scriptures when... Uh, especially in the epistles and Apostle Paul and others are talking about a perfect sacrifice uh, because that was pictured in the Old Testament. The sacrifice had to be perfect. First uh, Peter 1.19 says, But with the precious blood of Christ, like that of a lamb without spot or blemish, these readers would know they knew by their culture, by their history, that every lamb, every sacrifice had to be perfect. They had to look that there were people whose job it was to inspect these sacrifices, to look that lamb over. And if they found a, a blemish, they'd say, Mm-mm, that one won't work. Jesus, in his sacrificial form, never had anything that would disqualify him as an atoning sacrifice. Jesus was perfect. That means he was completely, completely in every way, acceptable to God and pleasing to God. We were displeasing. We created the problem. And as a sacrifice, Jesus fixed the problem. The next scripture is 1 John 3, 5. I love that you can... uh, skip, hop, and jump all through the Bible and see that it's all about Jesus. These scriptures specifically uh, talking about his perfect life. 1 John 3, 5 says, You know that he appeared in order to take away sins, 
And in him there is no sin. If Christ had sins of his own, what does Hebrews say about the priest? He said if we didn't have a perfect priest like we had in the past, if Jesus was not that way, he'd have to offer sacrifices for himself. Mm-hmm. Our perfect priest is not that way. He had no sins of his own to atone for. He would be disqualified from being a sacrifice in our place. Is it not magnificent? Is it not good news that he remains forever the perfect high priest, the perfect sacrifice? It's not like he's going to go through something this week. He's not going to have a bad day in heaven and sin and mess up and and spoil the whole system. No, he won't. He is forever God, forever perfect. It's the whole thing has to work together. The next category on page 257 states the son willingly offered himself. This is fantastic news. Again, uh, it refers to Philippians chapter 2, 6 and 7. But it goes on to verse 8 and it asks the question, according to verse 8, what even greater act of humiliation did the son willing willingly submit to. Let's go back to that. Philippians chapter 2. Read just a little bit beyond what we had earlier. We read to verse 7 earlier. But verse 8, going further, says, And being found in human form, he looked like a man. He was a man. He humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. This is significant. In that time, this was picture crucifixion, what we know about it. All the horror, all the cruelty, all the shame of it. In Jesus' case, all the injustice of it. This is God's best facing Man's worst. As man's ultimate form of torture and humiliation, crucifixion would have had no effect if Christ was not human. Can you see that? Only a real human body could absorb and feel the pain that the cross inflicted. You see? You can take a piece of carpet or a piece of wood and nail it to something else. It don't feel it. There's no pain there. This is pointing out again that Jesus was absolutely human. He had a real body. Only a genuine human man could feel the humiliation and of the betrayal the scourging and the shame of being stripped naked and nailed up to public view. It's more than just physical. It's psychological. He was was humiliated, betrayed by his friends, betrayed by his disciples, deserted by his disciples, tried at night. There was... Laws against that. They weren't supposed to try people at night. They had false charges. Can you imagine all these things? And you're just accused. You're just uh, confused and saying, why is all this coming on me as a person? Now, Jesus submitted to it willingly. But in a human mind, all these things would, would tear your, your psyche apart. Jesus willingly went through that. The note there says, The cross is arguably the cruelest form of torture ever invented by man. That the Son died willingly on such a cross reveals the extent of His love for the Father and for us. In one act, He pleased the Father, He atoned for us. Do you not see? That is is mind-blowing. Again, he points us to more scripture in John chapter 10. Let's turn there. 
those verses pointed out are 17 and 18. Jesus talking before his description, before his crucifixion, says, For this reason, the Father loves me, because I lay down my life, that I might take it up again. How miraculous is that? No one takes it from me, but I lay it down of my own accord, and I have authority to take it up again. This charge have I received from the Father. Notice, this language doesn't describe a battle or an argument or a struggle. There's no conflict between Jesus and the Father. As God, Jesus does have all power. Yet, at the precise, explicit instant in history, he willingly relinquished his life. Let's just look at that. Uh, Matthew 27. Turn there right quick. We know from Galatians that it says in the fullness of time this happened. Let's look at uh, Matthew 27 verses 45. Through 51. This is the account, partial account of the crucifixion. And it's absolutely worth it to start a little ahead. Notice this. Now from the sixth hour, there was darkness over all the land until the ninth hour. And about the ninth hour, Jesus cried out with a loud voice saying, Eli, Eli, lema sabachthani. That is, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And some of the bystanders hearing it said, This man is calling Elijah. And one of them at once ran and took a sponge and filled it with sour wine and put it on a reed and gave it to him to drink. But the others said, Wait, let us see whether Elijah will come to save him. And this is the verse. And Jesus cried out again with a loud voice, and somebody killed him. New. And yielded up your spirit. Mm-hmm. Willingly. Yeah. Of his own accord. He said, it's enough. It's finished. I'm going to die. And he, he yielded his own life. Fascinating. Yeah. Blows me away. And behold, the curtain of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. And the earth shook. And the rocks were split. The tombs also were opened, and many bodies of the saints who had fallen asleep were raised. As if the one who is upholding everything by, the, by his own power, all of creation, for an instant, when he relinquished his spirit, all of creation shuddered. There was a glitch. He didn't, he was not killed. He laid his own life down. What does Romans 5 verses 7 and 8 tell us about this same thing? About According to Romans 5, 7 and 8, what is one of the most amazing aspects of Christ offering himself for his people? Let's turn there, Romans 5. Start in verse 6. For while we were still weak, at the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. Who is the ungodly? You ever seen anybody breathing? Mm -hmm. That's the ungodly. For one will scarcely die for a righteous person, though perhaps for a good person one would dare even to die. This is the contrast. But God shows his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died 
for us? That answers the question that was asked there. What is the amazing aspect? The amazing thing is, while we were still sinners, the benefit is all ours. We were not a prize or a help or a benefit. Can we increase Jesus or God by offering ourselves to Him? He's God. He's complete. There's, he, he needs nothing. The cost and expense was all on Him. We brought nothing to the deal except this huge sin debt that we worked up every day in our actions and our thoughts, our attitudes. It was like a, a scale that you ratchet up. You go up a step with your sin. There's no way you can back down. You can't do anything about that sin. That sin has to be taken care of by somebody else, and that is Jesus. Mm-hmm. Our next scripture is Isaiah. According to the following text of the Old Testament, what was accomplished for God's people through the Son's offering of Himself. This is on page 258. Turn to Isaiah 53, the Gospel of Isaiah. <clears throat> of his soul he shall see and be satisfied by his knowledge shall the righteous one my servant Jesus made himself a servant make many to be counted righteous and he shall bear their iniquities he had none of his own he took ours in in Christ bearing our sins he satisfied God's justice and as a result we are viewed as righteous. This is the same, the same thing that we just saw in the New Testament. We are viewed as righteous. Just as righteous as Jesus himself. God is pleased with all that Jesus has done. We see that in Matthew, at Christ's baptism. What did the voice from heaven say? It said, this is my son in whom I am well pleased. There is nothing. God, the Father, looked down at Jesus, the son, and said, oh, mm-mm. Never. He was always pleased. We're we're imputed with the righteousness of Christ. He sees us as just as good as Jesus. Amazing. The Messiah will be abundantly satisfied as he reflects upon his redeeming work and the resulting justification of a countless multitude. How about that? Look in 2 Corinthians. The next scripture is 2 Corinthians again, chapter 5 again. Going to verse 21 this time. Oh, this is the same one we already had. This is double imputation I mentioned before the imputation it was double imputation our sin put on Jesus his goodness his righteousness everything good about Jesus is accredited to us as believers note this verse does say for our sake this is to help us this is to save us as believers it don't don't benefit Jesus. We're not going to help God. The benefit is all ours. Because he became sin on our behalf, we have become the righteousness of God in him. A lot of us that are here today, some of us were not here when we went through uh, Paul's series on in Christ, being in Christ. But that's what this is pointing out. If we are in Christ, God sees us as Christ. Now let's go to Hebrews chapter 10 again. Hebrews chapter 10. 
If we just had Hebrews, we would have enough. Hebrews chapter 10, verse 10. I don't know if we've read this one before or not. Oh, this talks about uh, the will. Chapter 10, verse 10 says, uh, I think it refers back to verse 9. Look in verse 9. He says, Jesus speaking. This probably comes from a psalm. I don't know. Behold, I have come to do your will. He does away with the first in order to establish the second. Okay, here's our verse. And by that will, we have been sanctified through the offering of the body of Jesus Christ every day. No. Once and for all. You ever wonder where we get these phrases? I do. We get so many of them from the Bible. Once and for all, there you go. We have been sanctified through the offering of the body of Jesus Christ once and for all. This is a done deal. Uh, this is God's plan. This will, that's what's what he's talking about. This God's will, his plan. What is God's will? That we be sanctified. No, this is an event in time. He talks about the body of Christ here. This is clear evidence, again, that Christ was fully man. This is God's plan. This is God's gospel. Uh, fallen man, seen as righteous by a holy God. At the top of the next page, 259, we can use the gray area there. Part of that says, the believers, to the believers, set apart or sanctified. That changes our position in Christ. It's accomplished. It is a reality. The believer has been made holy before God through Christ's Christ once and for all. You don't have to do it again. The Old Testament system, every time you sinned, I guess, or once a year they had big sacrificial services. Several times a year you come and you make sacrifices. Uh, once a week you come and make sacrifices. That's all over. What does Jesus say on the cross? It is finished. The veil was torn. There is no more holy of holies except that you can, as believers, we can enter right in the holy of holies. Once and for all, sacrifice. Let's look in 1 Peter. This is a short, simple statement. 1 Peter chapter 3. Looking at verse 18. This again uses the word once. For Christ also suffered once for sin. This is a very clear, succinct explanation of Christ's work. Christ also suffered once for sin. Who did it? The righteous. Who is the righteous? Christ. The righteous for the unrighteous. Who's the unrighteous? You ever seen anybody breathing? They're the unrighteous. That's us. That he might bring us to God. And being put to death in the flesh, but made alive in the spirit. This is Christ's work. A really short way to say it. Christ's sacrifice, all his perfect life, his atoning death. We're going to talk about his resurrection. All for the sake of sinners. Christ suffered. His real human body and his real human mind felt pain and anguish like we just talked about. And his flesh, he had flesh. Only something alive can die. He said this will bring us. What does that mean? He will reconcile us to God. There was no shortage or failure on the part of Christ. The work is done once and for all. Fascinating. The next category is the son raising himself from the dead. I'm going to read this heading in chapter 43 we learned that the father raised his son from the dead however we must understand that the scriptures further teach that the resurrection was also the work of the son notice this by his own power and authority he jesus defeated death 
The implications of this truth are far-reaching. His power to raise himself proves his power to raise his people. Jesus said of that, he said, if I be raised, later in the epistle, he said, if Christ be not raised, then we don't have any, any hope, do we? No. But since Christ was raised, we have all hope. Turn to John chapter 2. We'll look at this scripture. John chapter 2, verse 18 through 21. Interesting uh, exchange here between uh, people and Jesus, the Jews. So the Jews said to him, What sign do you show us for doing these things? They were looking for a way to for him to validate, uh, validate himself. Jesus answered them, Destroy this temple. And in three days, I will raise it up. The Jews then said, it's taken 46 years to build this temple. And will you raise it up in three days? But he was speaking about the temple of his body. He clearly said, talking ahead of time, he said, you will know that I am God. You will remember the things that I said about myself. You'll remember the things that I taught. You'll look back at your Old Testament scriptures and you'll say, oh, when I die and in three days that grave is opened and I'm arisen and alive, he said, this temple, this body, this thing that is, this flesh that is housing God right now, you put it in the grave, and I'm going to raise it back up. This temple of the flesh. Not only was Jesus aware of what was coming concerning his crucifixion and death, he was completely complicit and approving. He delighted in pleasing his Father. He delighted in saving his people. You may raise the question, well, Jesus asked to be relieved of it in the garden. Well, that was stressful. That was human. It was things were being poured out on Jesus at that instant that we can't imagine. God turning his, his face away from Jesus. Yet he said, not my will, but your will be done. He said, God, I will do your will. If that's what it takes to please you, if that's what it takes to buy your sheep, your church to redeem your people? Yeah. He says, I'll do that. He delighted in saving his people. Let's go back to John chapter 10. Drawing to a close here. All these scriptures. We can look at any book in the Bible actually, but the New Testament officials especially. John chapter 10 is really dear to me because of the uh, Good Shepherd references. This is in verses 17 and 18. After that exchange, he tried to tell the people, he used the example of a shepherd. He says, I am the Good Shepherd. This is after that. He says, for this reason, what reason? For this reason the Father loves me. Why? Because I lay down my life that I might take it up again. No one takes it from me, but I lay it down of my own accord. And I have authority to take it up again. This charge, this responsibility, this power, I have received from my Father. Jesus was stressing to his hearers that he was God. All that time, there was that back and forth thing about I'm the good shepherd. I'm the door. The shepherd lays down his life. He was just increasing incrementally, getting closer and closer, saying, I am God. He was telling them that he was God. Nobody would be saved unless the Father was appeased. And Jesus was the only qualified person for that job. Ever. Ever. There was nobody before. There has been nobody after. There will not be anybody after. He was the only one qualified. It was all planned. It shows that in this 
Jesus said, this is the charge of my Father. This is the plan. This is, what, this is my assignment. This is what He sent me to do. That gray note there says, the word authority comes from the Greek word exousia, which denotes the power and the right to act. Because the man Jesus was also Son of God, God the Son, He possessed both the power and the authority to carry out His Father's command, to give His life and to take it up again. Let's look at another verse in John chapter 5. Turn back there quickly. John is uh, rich with Jesus' deity. 5.26 Truly, truly, I say to you, an hour is coming and is now here when the dead will hear the voice of the Son of God. And those who hear will live. That note, I can't say it better than that note down there. Uh, no ordinary person has ever created life. We got a lot of young people, a lot of babies in here. You say, well, mom and daddy created that baby. They cannot create life. Every, from the most enormous whale or dinosaur that's ever lived to the smallest amoeba in a mud hole anywhere, any speck of life, that life was not in that thing before. God put the life in there. Jesus put the life in there. He alone has the power of life. Uh, that note down there says, the son's life is inherent. It was not given to him. He alone, he has life in himself. And it, furthermore, that note says, life is a permanent or essential characteristic of God the Son. Fascinating. You look at a blade of grass, I've talked about this before, or a plant, or a flower, or a bug, and it has life in it. Man cannot duplicate that. You take any pile of any material that you want to bring, truckloads and truckloads of material, to any person and say, here, I'll give you whatever you want. Create life. They can't do it. Only God creates life. That note says the Son has life in Himself. Therefore, He was able not only to give His life voluntary, but also voluntarily, but also to take it up again. And it points out some more scriptures. There are implications about these same things. Verses 27. Let's go back to uh, verse 25 in John 5 again here. I, I think I just read that. Uh, For as the Father has life in himself, so he has granted the Son also to have life in his self. And he has given him authority to execute judgment because, the son, because he is the Son of Man. Do not marvel at this, for an hour is coming when all who are in the tombs will hear his voice and come out. Those who have done good to the resurrection of life and those who have done evil to the resurrection of judgment. Not only does Jesus have power of life for himself, but his will be the voice that calls all the dead back to life on judgment day. It will be the voice of Jesus. That's what kind of authority he has. Again, let's turn over to chapter 11 in John again. If John and Hebrews was all we had, we'd have enough. Uh, 25 and 26. Jesus speaking to Martha, said, I am the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in me, though he die, yet shall he live. And everyone who lives and believes in me shall never die. We have assurance when we read these words from the lips of Jesus himself. We have assurance of revelation resurrection if our faith is in Jesus. Mm -hmm. Also, we know that our believing family and friends that have already died 
will be raised. All those living when Jesus returns who have saving faith will be in heaven. We have the authority of Scripture. We have the Word of Christ, which is the same thing. Because Jesus has this authority, because he has life in and of himself, what did he say about himself? He says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. He is the source of everything good, and one of those things is life. He has life. He can, all these things, able to, his resurrection, his atoning life, his perfect, perfect life, his atoning death, his uh, humanity, the fact that he was God, the fact that he willingly offered himself, they all dovetail perfectly into the gospel. You can I say this so often. We can't do without one of these doctrines. We can't take one out and still have a complete gospel. We'll have a weak spot. We'll have a place where a man will say, I think I've done good. I think I, I, think I worked out my own salvation. Or, or a person will say, I don't, I don't need Jesus. I'm just as good as Jesus. No, you're not. Jesus is also the standard. He lived a perfect life, and he set the standard for holiness. You can't take out any of these. Young people, if somebody says Jesus was just a man, what are you going to say? You say, no. Jesus is the God-man. Not only was he a man, he still is a man in heaven right now beside the Father. And when you do something wrong or there's a question about you, Jesus says, No, Father, that's mine. That's one of mine. He's good. Fascinating. Jesus' work is perfect. Jesus' word work is complete. Let's pray.